House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Now we have the dynamic duel of crime. <laughs> We've got Stephen and Joyce Singular. Thank you for being here. Thank, Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been really interesting. Now we've had you on before and um, talked all sorts of crime, but um, now we're going to talk about your book, Unholy Messenger, and it's the life and crimes of the BTK killer, serial killer. Um, wow! So how did you get uh, involved in this case? First of all, well, I grew up in eastern Kansas, and the story, of course, is set in Kansas, just north of Wichita. Uh, we were visiting my little, very small hometown in the uh, in eastern Kansas in June uh, or late May of two of two thousand and five. Uh, late May, as I say, and BTK had been arrested at the end of February of two thousand five. I took my son down to play basketball in this gym, and my old coach was there, and he said, "You got to write about the BTK case." And I said, well, you know, some other people are probably involved in that. He said, no, I'm serious. And he took out his phone. He said, my son was on the investigative task force, or my son-in-law, uh, that that uh, investigated BTK for a year after he came out of the woodwork in 2004. Uh, and he was a part of the arrest team, and he has a very inside view of what went on during that time. I probably lodged some sort of protest. He, he dialed the number and handed me the phone. And the next day, I was in Wichita talking to one of the one of the investigators on on the task force that again was operating for about a year. So it was a it was a great uh, doorway into seeing the police side of, of trying to catch this guy. They've been chasing him for 31 years, and it was the most frustrating thing that the Wichita Police Department had ever been involved in, and most people thought it would never happen, that he would be captured. So that was a very fortunate entry point into the story. And he was actually there when BTK was arrested, he right? Was. Yeah. Yes, he and was. Yeah, and that part of the book is, and it's really, it, it just leads up to that moment, you know, that the momentum of that point is so dramatic when they finally get him. And they go into his neighborhood, and they surround him, and, and you know the lieutenant Landwehr is in the back seat. It's all very interesting, but we don't want to get too far ahead of the story. Of course. Well, it was just Wichita as a community. You know, about three to four hundred thousand people were just so frustrated by this, and that went on again for three decades. And so when it finally happened, there was just this tremendous catharsis. Mm. Now that's you know it's a real interesting case. Now Dennis Rader. Um, though he was like, you know, the Boy Scout leader and the president of the church and all this stuff, uh, people were really surprised. And listening in your book, too, it was, I guess it was the uh, the, the minister of the church was, uh, you know, just couldn't believe it when the police had come with the search warrant. Um, do you think that people still have that impression that um, someone like this, that, that is kind of like... Uh, you know, a normal person, as they call it, a model citizen, could never be a killer like that. Do you know, you kind of know what I'm saying. Well, I think, I think that, you know, he sort of expanded the definition of what a serial killer could be. You know, one of one of the interesting parts of this is that, as we all know, <clears throat> the FBI started 
profiling serial killers at the Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico in the mid-70s. And so this is, you know, 2005. So they had a lot of experience, and they had been brought into this case over the years. And their profile kept saying he's single, uh, he li- you know, he lives alone, he lives in Wichita proper, he's got antisocial behavior that's, that's going to be very obvious in some way, shape, or form, and that's the individual we're looking for. And, of course, everything about it was wrong. So the experts had no idea, you know, who this guy actually was. And how well he could blend in to society. Yeah, they, they swabbed when, again, a little background, but he killed at least 10 people between 1974 and 1991, and then he probably stopped killing because in the early 90s, Kansas brought back the death penalty, and he probably knew that he had left DNA at certain crime scenes, and he had left it at three. So he, uh, you know, he finally came back in 2004, back into public view when he started communicating with the police. So that was they had swabbed 4,500 people in 2004, but they were all in the city of Wichita. And I think he was naive about how long they could preserve DNA. That's, that's and true. just think, if he hadn't left the DNA there, he might not have ever been caught. You know. Yeah. Well, or convicted, but anyway. Do, do you think that he wanted to be caught? A lot of people say that. I, I don't. Well, it's a very interesting question, you know. I mean, he, he from the very beginning, one of the interesting parts of him was that his first murder, we think, was a spectacular uh, crime in which he went into a house and killed four people, mother, father, father young daughter, and son. Uh so he, he, about six months later, when somebody else came forward and tried to take credit for the crime, he got very angry and he wrote a long letter to the local paper, the Wichita Eagle, saying, I'm the killer, not these people. And he gave very detailed descriptions of where each body was, what condition, you know, how he tied them up and all of that. So on the one hand, he wanted attention for it. Uh, on the other hand, he didn't want to get caught. But I'd like to answer that also, um, because when he did get caught, he, in his confession to the police, he stated that he had been compiling all of his, you know, data and drawings and uh, mementos and souvenirs and everything in what he called the mother load, and he was going to put them onto CDs, I guess at the time. And then he was going to put them in a safety deposit box so that someday after he was dead, people would know who the real BTK was. So I found that very interesting because in court he also expressed deep remorse, um, you know, for what he did to his family, his wife, his, all of his relatives, extended family. And, but yet it's, it's sort of a contradictory because who would have opened up that safety deposit box if not his family? So it was like he didn't, to me, it seemed like he didn't really care even about his family, if that's what he was planning to do to them after after he died someday. Of course, I don't believe everything he said either. I think yeah. he just, he was a pathological liar, too. Oh, it's interesting. Now, um, uh, you know, in, in reading this, uh, it, it seemed to me that his um, motive was really sexual sadism and, and uh and uh, watching a trapped, helpless woman. But you mentioned the, the first killing of, of a family. How, how does that connect? 
Well, he it wasn't intended for him to kill the father and son. He had worked at this uh, plant in Wichita and seen this woman Coleman, uh, Coleman working plant. there, right? And and was attracted to her. Uh, he was married at the time, so he started this long process of what he called, you know, stalking, trolling, uh, fi- you know, finding a victim, then giving what he called the project a name. Uh, he called this one Little Max because he saw that she had this young daughter. Uh, well, he saw that she. He thought they were Hispanic. Well, right. he knew they were Hispanic. He thought they were Mexicans. They were actually from Puerto Rico. Right. So the whole plan was after the father and son had gotten out of the house that morning that he would go in and, and be able to control that situation fairly easily uh, and kill them. But he had miscalculated because the father was there, all of them, were trained in the martial arts, uh, and they had a dog. So it's, it was, it's a rather extraordinary story how he was able to subdue them all. And then after killing the uh, the mother, the father, and, and the son, he did sort of, as, as you're saying, Alan, exercise sexual sadism uh, with the girl. He hung her up in the basement, and then he masturbated, and this becomes the first you know leaving of DNA at a crime scene. Hmm. So what what led him to this kind of a, a, a desire, do you think? You mean desire to kill people and watch them die? Yeah, like watch this whole, them. you know, because, you know, he's getting into, um, as a young, in a young age, he's getting into sexual fantasies of, of helpless women and stuff. But what, what drove him to actually go over and start torturing and hanging? Well, I think, you know, I think, you know, like you said, he started... He started when he was young. Um, he knew that he was different from other kids. He had these strange fantasies. Um, he was really fascinated by mummies because he liked the way they were all tied up. He found, he got a hold of those true detective magazines that were so popular back in the 50s and 60s where the woman is, you know, looking with horror into the camera as some shadowy figure off screen is, you know, about to kill them. And and then he started um, killing, you know, young, small animals. And he would, he liked to isolate it in barns where he could have the time to, you know, watch as the life sucked out of them. And I think, like a lot of serial killers, he had to be, in order to get gratification, he had to be, you know, gradually and exponentially increasing the you know the thrill so that you know he he had to move on to women but like steve said he was surprised by the men in the house being or the the man and the and the boy and and this is when he was still in his um you know infancy days of learning and and seeing what his mistakes were and he found out with the oteros that it was much harder to strangle a human being he had then after that he had to start you know, practicing uh, with these rubber balls so that his hands would get stronger. Yeah, he tried to, you know, he came from a very conventional background uh, of his parents and three brothers in this small Kansas town, sort I grew up in, heavily religious, you know, repressive and all that, and you could just see him kind of trying to shove all this down. You know, he, he, he goes into the army, uh, following his father's footsteps, you know, maybe that'll help him. If he just gets married to the right woman, you know, he'll be able to suppress all these instincts or has a family. If he, you know, joins the church uh, that he grew up around, and he just, he can't do it. You know, it just builds up and builds up inside of him, and then it, it, it just comes out in these horrific crimes. So, you know, if he'd gotten any 
any sort of help at all, uh, you know, psychologically or in any way, you know, it might have derailed some of it. But instead of doing that, he just, you know, he he hid from everyone. The only people that he ever told, you know, who he was, I'm BTK, were those who were about to die at his hands. And that one of the psychologists interviewed in the book, I thought they had an interesting take on that. They said Dennis Rader could only be himself with with his victims. They they were the only ones that were able to see who he really was, this other side of him that he called Rex or Factor X. Right, and and really to answer your question, from his point of view, he said that he was sort of demon-possessed. He couldn't really cope with the things that he was doing, so he, he would say this demon kind of entered into him, and he named it Rex, and he sort of drew it as a as a frog and all this stuff. He also, which I think is unusual probably in serial killers, is that he had the, all of these artistic impulses. You know, he wanted to draw. He, he wanted photograph, to write. yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was in a very non-artistic, repressive type of place, which I can speak about. And and so instead of sort of, you know, maybe developing that in some way that would have helped him as being creative, it went in to the darkest way possible. So then he would kill people, then he would make drawings of it, then he would write about it, you know, or take photos of the dead. And it just came out in the most, you know, negative way possible. Do you think, what was the um, connection between him and his victims? Like, if he felt he could only be himself with those those victims, was there something he was looking for in his victims? Well, he was looking for, you know, certain fairly obvious things. I want a single woman, so, you know, that when I, he kind of learned from the first situation or the second uh, that, I don't want to stalk anybody where there's going to be a male in the house or resistance of that type. You know, he was drawn to them physically. Uh, as time, and they were younger women, as time went on, his victims got older because younger people are harder to kill. So he, he you know, was looking for someone in isolation uh, where a lot of sound, if sound was made, it wouldn't reach other people. And what he really wanted, which goes back to what Joyce said with the animals in the barn, is that he wanted a lot of free right. time mm-hmm. to, you know, bind, torture, and kill, not which, just which, kill. Which, which is what he did with Maureen Hedge, the woman that he actually took to the church basement of Christ Lutheran Church. Yeah. And he had gone ahead of time and taped up, you know, the windows with um, with paper and masking tape so that he could have the time. I think he drove her body in, or he, yeah, he drove her yeah. in, to, with, in her own car, in the trunk of her own car, to that church basement in the middle of the night. And then he had plenty of time to pose her and photograph her. You know. right. It was the only time probably where he had as much time as yeah. he wanted. One of the things that he did was he had this young son. Uh, Raider was a Cub Scout leader, so they would go on Cub Scout overnights. When the kids were asleep, he'd leave the Cub Scout camp and go do what Joyce just described. I mean, it's it's probably the single most, you know, sort of grotesque uh, scenario, you know, where he's he's in the church as a member at that point, but he kills her, takes her in there, puts her in bondage positions, and takes a whole series of photographs. And when he wasn't doing that with women, he was doing it to himself. He was going out to rural areas 
stringing himself up in very elaborate, you know, um, knots and t- ropes, and ropes, and or putting putting a woman's mask with a blonde wig on himself, and you know, digging like a shallow grave, and 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 he had rigged up these photography uh, ways of you know photographing himself, and so that he and he kept everything. He kept all these photographs. He kept all of his drawings. I mean, there was a lot of things that he kept in his, what he called the mother load, which he, they eventually found. And he also, he lived in a 900-square-foot house, which is quite small, if you can visualize that, with his wife and two children when they were growing up. And he kept other mementos and writings and drawings stashed away in that house in drawers that he had beneath the regular drawers. So he was constantly, you know, reliving these, you know, moments for him of of killing people. Well, it kind of sounds like he was really into the process and tried to, I don't know, almost enjoy it, like he wanted to savor a certain amount of time with his victims. Um, So how was he able to stop all of a sudden? Well, number one, he was getting older, you know, and as Joyce alluded to, it became harder hard to strangle people you know that's the way he wanted to do it he didn't want to shoot them or knife them to it was death. too messy he had to he had to knife someone and it was yeah. way too messy for him he was a very meticulous organized killer yeah yeah so he was absolutely 100 percent into the process as you put it but the fact that he was getting older uh at a certain point he began to get some attention as BTK. This is another interesting angle. He killed the four Oteros, and then he killed three more people, and and then he reached out to the media and the police again and said, you know, why don't you put this in the paper? Why don't you? I, I'm giving myself a name. It's BTK. Why can't I get some recognition? So the Wichita police initially said, we're not going to publicize any of this. And then they said, we think we should, because he just kept killing. So once he got that, he kind of backed off for several years. But he, again, to your question, he also really enjoyed this fantasy life. You know, he took great pains to dress up in different kinds of clothing, and he had the time, because the types of jobs that he had afforded him time you know, when he worked for ADT security systems or, you know, um, as a compliance officer, he could he could go down streets, look for people, look check out the backs of their houses, and he would dress up like, one time he dressed up like in a tweed outfit, kind of a la uh, James Bond. And, you know, so he really enjoyed that cat and mouse aspect to it, which he did later on with the detectives, with yeah. Detective Landwehr. That's true. Um, do, do you folks feel... Um his stopping was also assisted by the vast collection of mementos that he had, um, so he could fantasize instead of having to go out and recommit crimes. You know, that's a really good point. We've never really been asked that. I, I never thought of that. That's it's a very good point. That that may be true. I think he he followed law enforcement. You know, like certain people who are criminals. You know, he sort of wanted to be in law enforcement, and he and he kind of had an admiration for the police. So I think he was very aware that when that death penalty came back, that he was going to be vulnerable. It's, uh, so, what, what do you say about the law enforcement? Like, um, 
with so many killings in such a small city, kind of, um, what was the reasoning behind this? Why were they not able to, to lock in on, on him? They were looking in the wrong place. They, they were looking in Wichita proper, and again, we, I didn't name the town, but it's called Park City. Uh, it's about uh, 10 or 15 miles north of Wichita, very similar to the community of 900 that I grew up in. It has about six churches, so, you know, saturated with religion. Uh, and the, the entire profile about who they were looking for was wrong. And also, he changed his M.O. You know, after the Oteros, he specifically went after, he did it a different way so that they would not think it was the same, yeah. per, you know, person. And they bought him a little bit of time until they started connecting the dots. Right. They They would never, ever have caught Dennis Rader if he hadn't essentially caught himself. Mm-hmm. So to advance the story a little bit, he apparently stops killing in 91. There is debate about that. Some think he killed people that we don't know about. But in 2004, the Wichita Eagle runs a story. The terrorists were killed in 1974, so it's 30 years later. And whatever happened to BTK? And a lot of speculation was that he was dead. So that Sunday morning in the Sunday Eagle, he goes, he picks up his newspaper, he sits down with his cup of coffee and reads all these people saying, well, he's probably dead. And also that there, that somebody was going to be writing a book about it. Right. And he did not want someone else to be you know, writing his story. He kind of saw himself in this movie of himself. Right. BTK Productions, he named it. So, So he said, you know... I'm not dead. <laughs> Maybe I should bring back BTK. And uh, he, so he started basically to work on that. He had, his eighth victim was a woman named Vicki Wegerly in 1986. And he had also uh, masturbated at that particular scene and then one other. So as I said, there were three samples. He had taken uh, her driver's license as a a souvenir after killing her, and the police could never find where that was. So he took a a photo of it, and then he sent it into the newspaper and said, you know, I'm BTK, Uh, here's a picture of her driver's license. So they knew that he was serious. The case was so cold at that point that the editors or the people at the Wichita Eagle didn't even open the letter for, you know, days. They just thought it was nothing. And then once they did, they took it to the police, and this kick re, you know, instituted the BTK uh, task force that I alluded to earlier. Now, so when you talk about the uh, Mindhunter series and stuff like that, um, why do you think they profiled them so wrong? Like, why were they so off? Well, they they simply weren't, you know, they they just had the wrong information. I mean, again, he he was absolutely capable of fitting in. You know, if you jump ahead to 2004, when he reads the article and reconnects with the police, he is a compliance officer in this little town, meaning he goes around and you know, checks on if dogs are running loose or things like that. He's the president of his congregation, you know, the the, the rock in the church, along with his wife, Paula. I mean, he fit in perfectly into that community, and there was never any sense that the killer was not in Wichita proper. Now, 
as he got older, he did start to kill women who were in his own community. Even just down the block from him? Yes, one. because yeah. he, could, he could stalk them more easily and figure out, and they were older, so he could kill them more easily. But the police just didn't, you know, it wasn't just the police. I mean, they had the KBI and they had the FBI and they had all these specialists. And it just shows you, you know, it, it takes a break sometimes to, to get close to a killer. So now the break was, what, in a floppy disk. So maybe explain that. Well, the what happened was that in March, he read the article in January of 2004. In March of 2004, he starts sending out these communications to the police. And the police, led by Lieutenant Ken Land, were very, very astute in thinking if we if we don't, you know, go on the air and say negative things about this guy, if we try and establish some sort of relationship through the media, he's going to want to continue to communicate with us. It was a very, you know, interesting insight on their part because he did want to communicate with people. He did sort of want credit for what he had done. And sort of a camaraderie with law enforcement. Right. Mm -hmm. So... That they went back and forth. You know, he would send in some communication. He'd say, "Here are the chapters of the book I'm going to write," you know, and or some little other souvenir from one of his crimes. And they would go back on the air and say, "You know, we, we'd really love to talk to you. You know, that would be fascinating." Very soft core stuff. And over time, a, a certain you know relationship did develop between Landwehr and between BTK. And then finally, and it's, it's just almost unbelievable, BTK sends in uh, a question basically to the police and says, if I were to use a floppy disk to communicate with you, would you be able to trace anything that's on that back to me? And guess what the police said? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that would never happen, you know. So... He, as Joyce has pointed out in other contexts, he wasn't that he wasn't technologically astute. You know, he had used like Xerox machines and stuff like that going back to the 70s to create documents, but he didn't know much about computers. So he sends it in, and and then they they did the forensics on the properties. Right. And when they scrolled down for the properties, it said Christ Lutheran Church Dennis. Yep. And that's all they needed. Within 10 minutes of getting the disc, they knew his, they knew who he was, which, and, which, yeah. is, which and, is not to say that they were ready to arrest him. No, they, they had to dig some more, and they, did, they dug up his daughter Carrie's DNA at uh, the, the uh, university that she had attended and for a gynecological exam, and that's how they got it. Yeah, so it took them about... Uh, a week or so from the time they figured out, you know, who who they were quite certain that he was. So they sent all of these undercover people to Park City. You know, they were climbing telephone poles and tailing him around town and looking at his routine and all of that. But they had to wait, you know, sort of unbearably long to get that DNA and yeah. then to get it tested. Yeah. And so when it came back and they got, you know, a hit from her, they were ready to close and, in. And he had been planning for his final, his BTK finale. He wanted to get a woman, and he wanted to string her up 
a la Silence of the Lambs, like they did with the security guard in that really horrific scene, you know, where the, the body is just, you know, up in the air, hanging. Mm-hmm. He, that was his grand finale, and luckily they got him before that. Yeah, wow. yeah, he, he, that was going to be his, his swan song. Yeah. He was going to do it on October 22nd, 2004, which was 30 years to the day, from when he sent that first letter into the media saying, I'm BTK and I want some credit for what I've done. Wow. Almost proud. So it, yeah. Yeah. So they waited on February 25th, 2005, again about a year since the task force starts, to uh, let him go to work that morning. And then they they followed him on his way home for lunch. And, and because he was such a creature of habit, I mean, this is how meticulous and organized this guy was. He would come home from from work to lunch. He wanted his wife to have that lunch ready every day at exactly I think it was twelve seventeen, right? Yeah, he left at twelve fifteen. And it had to be on the table for him at twelve seventeen. So you so know, at about twelve sixteen, yeah, yeah, the police pull him over, and. Uh, he has absolutely no idea, you know, that they're watching him. Well, he had heard on the scanner that the Just FBI that was in town, but but he thought, well, if they are here after me, there's nowhere I can run to. So, you know, he just was on the he was operating on the assumption that they were there, but not not look, not knowing who he was yet. Right. So there were a number of arresting officers, and one was the detective that I mentioned when the, this conversation first started who was a great source of information, again, about, you know, we're talking about, well, he, you know, sends in a few things and then he gets arrested. Not true. Those police were sitting on street corners night after night when the weather got really awful in early 2005, you know, all pulling all-nighters because he would send in these communications at a certain address. So then they'd go back to the address and spend all night or they would go back to the cemetery where some of his victims were buried because he'd make an allusion to them. It was grueling, grueling work, and at times it seemed they would never catch him. So now they've got him, they pull him out, put him on the ground, and, and Lieutenant Landwehr is sitting in a car right there, and he, they take him over there, and, and Landwehr says, do you know why we're here? And he says, yeah, I think I do. So so it was it was a dramatic ending to you know to his life as a free man well it's interesting too i guess originally he pleaded uh not guilty and it took him over almost two months before he changed it and then he explained everything what what made the made him change all of a sudden do you think well the extraordinary thing was as we've talked about uh, with you is that he never told anybody he was living right next to his wife, children, minister, co-workers, and he never told anyone anything ever about what he had done as a criminal. They took him that day down to the FBI building in downtown Wichita at about 1 p.m., and for the next 32 hours, he's talked nonstop to a rotating series of police officers and FBI agents. He told them, probably 90% of what he had done. We we don't know, but he he talked for 32 straight hours. So he had, you know, it just erupted. It was like, oh, now I have an audience. 
and these people really want to hear this. So it all came pouring out. And he was he was proud of his work, yeah. his handiwork. He truly was. Yeah. So he he you know gradually I think evolved into realizing that you know going to trial or pleading innocent or anything like that well they had his DNA and they had the disc so he didn't really have a case but it would be more grueling for his family you know more grueling for the city of Wichita and and they had him dead to rights anyway so he he uh, decided to confess and that in itself became a spectacle so how did his wife take this and and they had no idea the family no no according to his daughter's book Carrie Rawson um they had no idea and his wife was devastated as you can imagine and she left town or she had to go stay with relatives and, and then got a, a a divorce very quickly, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the church protected her a lot. She was a member of the choir in the church too, and I think they were sort of getting her in and out of town, you know, away from the media. I mean, they were just totally devastated. The brothers, know. his brothers, he had three younger brothers. Right. They were in total denial about it. They said, "No way, you you cannot have the right man. This is not who our brother is." So it took a while for them to, you know, for it to sink in. And but when he did that confession on national television, I think, you know, that was it for everybody. Yeah, that's true. There were a lot of people who thought that the police had made a false arrest in December of '04, brought somebody in, turned out not to be BTK. So there was a lot of feeling around that. Well, maybe they got the wrong guy again. And because he wasn't saying anything, you know. It came to be June 27, 2005, and he had to make it, enter his plea in front of the judge. And so, you know, with national media looking on and a lot of, you know, viewers, he said, yes, I'm guilty. And the judge, you know, said, are you, are you sure of that? And he said, yeah, I'm guilty. And the, the uh, legal proceeding could have ended at that point. The judge could have said, okay, we'll sentence you in six weeks, which often happens. But he didn't do that. So what happened next is something unprecedented in the history of American television in which the judge basically walked him through his ten murders. And so he could show that he was the actual killer and, and he sort of, and by doing that, he sort of, I think he did the the community a, a great service by demystifying the the urban myth that BTK had become. You know, he wasn't this, you know, this this crazy empowered madman. He was this bumbling, inarticulate, balding sixty year old man, and he just, and it kind of, it just took the sort of took the air out of the sails for the community once they saw. What he, what, you know, once he was unmasked, there were a lot of people initially who thought the judge shouldn't have done that because you gave him a platform to talk about his crimes. But it, it was a cathartic moment. I mean, this community had been terrorized by him in one way or another for three decades, and when it, when it, after that was done, it was it was the right thing to do, just like Joyce said. So now there's that there's the rumors that he's killed others. Do you think that he had killed others and didn't admit to them and we don't know? 
That's a good question. I think that's a really we, good question. We know pretty much that he stalked others. When when the book came out in April '06, I was on uh, CNN. Anderson Cooper. He did an hour on BTK, and we started hearing from people. Uh, Through our website, stephensingular.com, and that's when we got a a communicate an email from an anonymous man, at first anonymous, in Wichita, who had a very interesting tale to tell. Right. Well, first, before that, we got, or simultaneously, there was a woman who came in and talked about how she'd gone out with a guy who fit this physical description in the 70s, and one night she heard these tires coming up her gravel driveway and her door, you know, being trying to be pulled open, and she absolutely thought that it was Raider, but he didn't, you know, he didn't get in the house. Then we heard from a man, and again, to go back to what I said, he confessed for 32 hours about all the things he did. So we thought, you know, well, that's pretty much his story. This guy comes in and he says, well, there's a part of the story he left out, and that is that when he was young, about 20, he was this good-looking guy and, uh, and you know, a, a livelier presence, and he would go to a place in Wichita where all the gay men went. But he was profoundly conflicted about his sexuality, and he he couldn't, you know, so he went out on a date with this guy that was contacting us, and in the middle of it, out of nowhere, he throws him down, ties him up, beats him up, and... Well, and he made him dress like a woman because he said he couldn't be sexually satisfied unless he, he dressed up as a woman. Right. Remember? Yeah. So he talked about, and this really may go back to your original question, Alan, about you know some of the source of his conflict, rage, violence, etc. Because this guy that contacted us felt that you know maybe he was gay. He couldn't come to grips with any of this at all. And again, it just came out in the worst you know way imaginable. This fellow told us that there was a murder in 1969 of a gay man in Wichita and. All of those in the gay community felt that BTK, Raider at that point, was likely the killer. We don't know that. We're not saying that. But that was sort of the underlying feeling. But nothing ever happened legally with that. And then he evolved into what he became. But this guy thought, you know, if he could somehow have dealt with himself, you know, in that way this might not have happened. So now you're going to be on CNN again. Have you you've done some sort of special for them for March? Well, in November, um, CNN contacted us, and we went to Wichita, and I was a consultant, and Steve was on camera. And that show, I think, is going to air in March of, of this year. However, um, when we get the actual air date, we will put that on our website, which is stephensingular.com. Right. Fantastic. Now, what do you hope people get out of reading the book? What do you want them to take away? Well, my takeaway is is that you you know we've written about other another serial killer 
who was much more of a, of a common criminal. He was killing women and taking their money. And, and that was in Kansas also. That was there. To me, this is sort of the ultimate psychological serial killer story. Uh, you know, he he was killing people because he could not come to grips with himself and who he was. And I, I mean, I just felt like, I mean, it's kind of silly to say this, but I always felt that it, in a different set of circumstances, these deaths might not have happened. If he'd gotten some help, if he'd come to terms with his sexuality, you know, if he had had any understanding of himself at all, but he just went in the opposite direction. And he, he never tried to get help for himself. He knew that he said that something was wrong with him, but he never sought out any kind of help. He did. He said that very early on, that he knew he that there was something wrong with him, and, you know, the police offered a hotline, you know, we'll help you, we'll get your help. Uh, you know, here he is with this minister who was an absolutely wonderful man named Michael Clark, uh, Clark at the end of, you know, his road there in the church, and that man would have done anything for him. He, it, The denial of what you are inside, whatever you are, you know, you need to be. And, you know, not a criminal, but short of that, to me, that's the moral of this story. He tried to deny it through marriage, work, religion, military, everything imaginable. You know, maybe killing that gay man in 1969. It's You can't deny what you are and be healthy. And what I got out of it after having to re-examine the case after so many years, because, you know, we have we have written quite a few other books, you know, that, since then, um, but when you when you go back and you look at it with a you know a little bit of hindsight, it's very interesting that people try to pay, place labels on why people kill. You know the psychological aspect is what's always drawn Steve and I to these types of cases. Um, some people just say, oh, they just label it as oh, it had to be evil. He was evil, and then you get the psych different psychologists' um, examinations of, you know, repression or, you know, definition of, of mental illness and, and what is the legal definition of mental illness. And like one of the people said in the, one of the experts said in the book, and it's funny because all, even the experts disagree when it comes to, you know, the definition of mental illness and, 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 and insanity. But when you kill 10 people, how could you be sane? Yeah. Mm. There's no greater example of the compartmentalization of a life probably than this guy. You know, killing and then going home to wife and kids and somehow being able to separate. The only way he could do it was to say, I, there's a demon inside of me, which really doesn't wash. There might be a demon, you know, in that 10 minutes when you're killing somebody. You could, might say that, but he would plan this months in advance and he would go through the whole plan, elaborate plan. So it was just this complete refusal to you know to look at himself and when they arrested him you know he with the fbi they were investigating him and he said you know i'm basically a nice guy i've just got a couple of bad habits i mean that was his level of self-examination you know and so that's that to me was what i got out of it fantastic now uh you have the website what's, what's your website again it's www.steven, with the P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, singular, S-I-N-G-U-L-A-R.com. And we always update that with what we're working on and, you know, upcoming appearances and, and television and movie, um, you know, information. 
Fantastic. Now, the book we're talking about is Unholy Messenger. It's the life and crimes of the BTK serial killer. And our guests have been Stephen and Joyce Singulaire. We'll have that on our website as well, so people listening can do one click and pick up the book. Thank you guys for being here. Well, thank, thank you for you having so us. Much, Alan. Really, really appreciate it. it. Thanks. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. <laughs> The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you! If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Wave Media.